0: You a better way you don't have to be Another face in the Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 12, 2013, and this is episode uh, uh, 1087 of the Survival Podcast. It's also... Skill Girl's birthday, yes, Dorothy's birthday today, so if you're a friend on Facebook or if you exchange emails with her, whatever, say happy birthday to Dorothy today. Anyway, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about mob grazing and taking the concept down to a small piece of land. I've done a lot lately with mentions about Alan Savory's work. Yesterday I talked about Greg Judy's work, and there's a lot of other people, Joe Salatin springs to mind that have worked with a paddock shift concept on a very large scale, using very large room, and it's like cattle mostly. Uh, Jeff Lawton's doing the same thing at the permaculture farm that he's running in Australia. Uh, a little bit of a different end in mind, but the same exact philosophy. The thing is, very few people that listen to this show are sitting on like a 100 acres that they're managing cattle on. The average TSP listener is someone that has... Um, a, a typical suburban lot up to somebody with a you know maybe a dozen acres or so, and and, and even as you get into like the ten acre parcels, you can do cows on ten acres, but boy, it's uh you're not gonna do that many of them, and there it's a bit of a large animal, and even people with enough land to maybe run a, a small herd. Often don't really want the work, or don't want that large of an animal to be uh, looking after. They want to maybe manage a couple acres, three or four or five, and and then you know that's not really a cattle operation. And so what I've gotten in the past week since I started talking about this in some feedback shows is several dozen at least emails. I have an acre. I have a half an acre. I have four acres. I want to do this. How do I do it with animals that are not huge, giant things like cattle that I don't want? And that's what I'm going to talk about. And it works out well because it's what I'm doing here. It's what I'm developing the plan for right now. And it's something that I've been in and out on a couple different things, and I've kind of shifted my methodology over time, and we'll talk about that today. With plans uh, as far as the livestock we'll be adding here at our homestead, the wh- why behind decisions, including some very recent changes in some, some planning and ideas. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, I told you guys for years to stock up on ammo, right? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, if you want to do it right now, uh, Bulk Ammo is the place to do it. They're, they've got a lot of stuff that hasn't been in stock for a long time back in. Uh, plenty of 5.56 ammo. Uh, plenty of 9mm ammo, uh, plenty of forty-five ammo. A little bit higher than it was a few months ago, let's say, but lower than it was a few weeks ago. And at least it's available, and quite a bit of it's available. I'm also sitting on their site right now. I'm probably about to sell all 63 of these for them. Uh, but high-capacity magazines have been pretty hard to come by. Right now, they have 63 ready-to-ship on the front page of their website. Not 30-round, but 20-round AR-15 uh, Thermomold mags at 15.99. That's a pretty good deal. Check them out today if you haven't For BulkAmmo.com. Make sure you check your MSB if you're an MSB member, because they do offer a discount to members of the Support Brigade. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. The sponsor that was a sponsor... Before we had sponsors, the sponsor was like, I want to sponsor your show. And I'm like, I don't do that yet. I'm not ready for that yet. And he's like, come on, let's do something together. And we put it together, and we did. And now he's been with us for over four years, Vic Rontala over at Safe Castle Royal, huge supporter of the show with everything you could need for your prepping, from tactical to practical and everything in between, long-term food storage, um, you know, prepared foods, and if you want to do your own bulk packaging, everything you need to do that, vacuum sealers, Mylar, O2 absorbers, you name it if it's for prepping. Safe Castle has it. They also build some of the best hardened shelters in the world if you have need of something like that. And if you live in Tornado Alley, it might be something you want to consider. I'm just saying, we're about to go through our three months of terror, as I call it down here, where every other week we have some major tornadic event in North Texas. It's something we're looking at doing for ourselves. So check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. They also have an awesome discount membership club. It's 49 bucks, and then you get a lifetime membership for discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But guess what? If you're a Member Support Brigade member here at the Survival Podcast, you get that for free. That means your first year of MSB it costs you a buck because of that one benefit. And there's another 30-odd vendors in there. And I'm about to add two more for you this week to the Member Support Brigade. So that's a good segue over to that. Uh, if you want to help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, when you get done listening to the show, if you think that was worth two dimes... And I'm going to listen again tomorrow, and it'll probably be worth two dimes again. Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And look at it this way. You get the content for free, and you choose that it's worth that much, and you pay for it. But in return, you'll also get enough discounts to get all your money back. This is just one that I mentioned just a couple seconds ago. And I've got some really cool stuff on the way. I've got two new vendors I'm about to bring on, uh, both that are quite cool in two totally different ways. And remember, Military Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics – I give you an additional discount if you email me before, not after you sign up, and uh, i 'll give you a discount code just tell me who you are and what you 're doing or who you are and what you did if you 're a prior service just a sentence or two i don 't need your whole c v or anything like that um, with that i 've got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up let 's get into the uh, the main topic today okay so let 's start out with what this whole concept of mob grazing is the mob grazing. Uh, and again, I've posted uh, art, uh, two really great presentations, one by Alan Saver, who's been doing this for decades, and mostly in the third world, and a guy named Greg Judy I posted. And if you go to the show notes today, episode 108.7, you'll find links to both of those presentations, again, if you haven't seen them yet. They're both worth watching. Uh, Alan's is a TED Talk lasts about 20 minutes, I think, and Greg's is like an hour-plus presentation that goes through a PowerPoint deck that actually shows more of the mechanics behind it. But what you see in Allens is the reason that I think so many people are excited about this and starting to understand that this type of management actually improves the land. And, and here's the reality. If you ask most people, if you want land to recover, should you put more or less animals on it? Conventional wisdom would be less, that the animals take from the system. And because they take from the system, you they, they could only let them take so much. And this is actually a permaculture principle, limits to population. Right, we have to limit the population, but what is that limit, right? And and how is that limit assessed? Is it based on just a a finite carrying capacity? If I have a hundred acres, I can have one cow per acre, a hundred cows. And what happens if I just dump a hundred cows on a hundred acres and let them do whatever the hell they want to? Well, the reality is they'll do a lot of damage to that land. Um, it will never recover in but and it will never have a pulse effect. And maybe 100 is too many. I mean, I'm not a cattle guy. I'm really not. I am a, a much more a small livestock guy. I have a little bit of experience with cattle, but primarily just in dealing with them because you were somewhere where they were. Um, I've never managed cattle, um, so I don't know exactly what the density is that these guys are using. But let's say it was 50 cattle. Let's say we're going to put 50 cattle on 100 acres. Now, I can actually see 50 cattle doing quite a bit of damage to 100 acres. Um But if I break that up into two-acre paddocks, and I move those cattle every day, so they're on two acres a day, and there's a 50-day period between them being on one paddock and ever being there again, all of a sudden the land starts to recuperate, and then you start to realize something about the cattle. The cattle are not just takers, they're also makers, and they're makers in more than one way. Everybody thinks about the manure, right? So the cows eat the grass and they crap, okay? And, and that that's one thing that they do as a maker. They make fertility with manure. But they don't just crap. They also step in it. I know that seems gross to you and me, but cattle are cattle. They're not people. They, you know, they don't want to stick around in their own excrement for long. But they don't mind walking through it. They really don't. If you've ever watched cattle in a field and you watch, they don't go around a patty. They right through, grate right through it. Okay. So that's another thing they do is they actually push their own manure into the soil. Okay. Now another thing is they're walking on this grass. Now, if you've ever watched cattle move through a, a field or even a bushy area when they're clearing out brush, they don't, you know, like walk a little step and then eat until there's no more left and then walk it a little bit more and then eat until there's no more. They're not real conscious about the fact that some of that stuff's getting trampled to the ground. So they also bend over, break and smash down a lot of the grass. And as a, as a lot of conventional beef farmers look at that, and go, "Oh, this will be wasted feed." But every single bit of that grass that gets pushed into the ground is improving the soil fertility. So they're also making fertility and making soil simply by being there. Now, if they're there every day, then there's no recovery period. So it would be like, you know, if you want to build muscles, you go into the gym. And you really do a good, heavy bench workout. You work your triceps, your chest, right? You know, and maybe you do a little bit of bicep, right? And you work really, really hard. I mean, you work to to the edge of what you're capable of and a little bit beyond. You have a spotter that at the end, like your last rep in each set, you know, that are they're basically, you know, helping you because you can't even get the last one up. You put yourself into muscle failure, right? And if you do that consistently the right way, You'll break down muscle it'll rebuild and break down and rebuild and you'll get bigger and stronger. If you just did that, you know, every two hours you did a workout like that for a month, you're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of the month. You're going to look more like somebody that came out of the gulags. You'll, you'll tear the muscle down and it, it won't have a recovery period. And if you went through something like that for a 30-day period, you're probably going to take a long time to recover longer than it would have taken if you would not have done it at all and just started working out sensibly. And I think most people that are into physical conditioning understand this. There's recovery days. Even people that work out every day, they generally work out different zones. They work chest and arms one day, legs the next day, core the next day, so that the chest and arms have a period of recovery. And then maybe they do a cardio day, and then they go back to chest and arms. And, and if you think about that, that makes perfect sense that your muscles would require a recovery period if you wanted them to grow. That's mob grazing. This acre paddock that the, the, the 50 cows just were on for a day or a day and a half or two days. They've eaten it. They've crafted it. They've mashed it down. They've done all this stuff. It needs a recovery period. It's so obvious when when you ask the average person about a gym workout. I think because we're more familiar with that today. We just weight loss programs on TV and kickboxing this and Taibo that and you know Billy Banks and all this other crap that's on. I know it's older, but it's just what's coming to mind. But you get what I'm saying. Like this is common knowledge today about all of these what works and what doesn't. But the basic theory behind physical fitness, in spite of the fact that most of our country's fat is, uh, is, is known, at least that you would, this is how you would do it if you wanted to. So why doesn't it make sense that, again, patterns replicate in all places. If you see a pattern anywhere, it probably applies everywhere. You just need to look for it. So there's a pattern association. Now here's another thing that happens. Some of that grass is trampled down and it makes soil contact and that stuff can break down right away and it's mashed down with the poop. Okay. But a lot of the grass is dead or dying. And it's standing a standing litter, and it creates this an air pocket between the soil surface and uh, the exposure to uh, the atmosphere, the wind, the sun, erosion, rain. It creates this air pocket. What's that like in a garden mulch? So effectively, the cattle are working organic matter into the surface layer of the soil, mulching it, and moving on in a mob grazing environment. Now, in a mob grazing environment with cattle, the way that happens is every day or every 12 hours, depending on the frequency of movement, how big, how many cattle, whatever, somebody goes out there and goes, ah, cow, yeah, yeah, and pushes them and opens a gate and sends them to their next place or moves some electric netting fence or whatever, or gets their cattle dogs out and moves them. And why do we have to do that? Because cows are stupid. Cows are a domesticated animals. They are not, they are not predated on, on any high level anymore. Um, coyotes and wolves will take some calves, but even wolves aren't messing around with a full grown, uh, cow. They're really not. They're gonna get the gut stomped out of them. Um, if you wanna see this work in nature, it used to work with the bison. A bison knew what a bison was. And there was enough inherent memory in the bison of what a predator was that even though the big predators were gone from North America by the time we came here, the big predators were gone for thousands and thousands of years, there was an echo in the bison, you know, and there was enough activity with wolves and coyotes and 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 probably in some environments, cougars taking down bison, calves at least, that the bison behaved like bison. Where the cow is just kind of like, duh. So the cow doesn't know real predation anymore we've we've ta- the cow doesn't know how to behave like a cow the cow really stems from things like the european ox all right that was wild and built the forests in europe and advanced the forest by being an edge creature cattle are an edge creature they like a open savanna environment where they can retreat into the forest and if you don't believe that put cattle out in a pasture where they have access to a forest and let it get hot and see where they go let it get cold and windy and see where they go They go right into that forest. They remember that, but they don't remember this concept. And the the land that we're managing for them, even if it's a few hundred acres or more, isn't big enough for them to wander and truly migrate. You want to see it work out today? About the only place you can still see it is the, the, the plains of Africa. And you can go out there, and you'll see a huge herd, a mixed herd of gazelles and kudu, and all of these different plains game. Zebras are another common that you get in huge numbers in one place. And you'll watch this mob, and you can see, you know, where it's flat in the plains, 15 miles in all directions out to the horizon. There's land everywhere, and there's a sea of animals, but they're all almost touching each other. Okay. And then the next day they won't be in that spot. They'll be like further down the line, whichever direction the migration's moving at that point, driven by energy forces and, and the changing seasons and where water's available. And then the next day they won't be there. They'll be somewhere else. They'll basically stand in an area until they've fed and shit so much that they no longer find that palatable and then they'll move as a unit. Now why do they move as a unit? Because if a wildebeest walks off by itself, Right or a gazelle walks off by itself and strays from the herd, chomp, leopard, lion, top predators, they're still there. These animals know what they are. So this mob movement is a defense mechanism against large predators that enables the animals to move, and nature is designed to work this way. And this is why when we leave the plains alone, They seem to do well, but when we leave what we would call agricultural land, it's already been damaged alone. It doesn't have this game movement through it alone. It just sits there and withers, like Alan's properties that he shows in his presentation. Then you bring cattle in. And Alan did something that I would have not, if I hadn't seen it, I I wouldn't believe it. And I mean, and if it was anybody without his track record, I don't know that I'd believe it. I'd say it's a lie. Goes into places where you almost, you look at the land and go, there's nothing for a cow to eat here. This is just desolate. The one place he said he offered a guy, he offered the whole community, anybody who could find one blade of grass on the place they started, five bucks, which is apparently a lot of money in this part of Africa. No one finds anything. They put the cattle in there, they give them no feed, and a few years later, the creeks are running again, it's an oasis. How does this work? The cattle find something, and they take, and they make, and if you move them, the ground gets the ability to use the fertility and have recovery. The cattle do the work. This is why it works. It's also why it's natural. And those two things are important to understand. That what we're talking about here isn't something that people came up with. It's something that nature came up with a long time ago. And every continent with with savannah and plains had a version of it. About the only place you won't find it work this way is in jungles and deep forests. This is a savanna and plains type of scenario. So even though the bison will go into the forest, they don't they don't really live there. They're an edge creature. And that's how the bison moved throughout the Great Plains in North America. And they were far further east and west, I think, than most people realized before we started killing them off. So this is a natural system. It's important to get that. Um, and now we need to talk about two terms that people use a lot Paddock shift and tractoring. And what are the advantages and disadvantages of each? And what is the difference between paddock shift and mob grazing? Uh, the difference between paddock shift and mob grazing is absolutely nothing. They are the same thing, just when we talk about mob grazing, we're talking about large herds of large ruminants, and therefore the paddocks are generally larger, and the methods by which the animals are moved are generally different, you know. I, there's some pictures in Greg's presentation of them walking cow, like a huge herd of cows are walking right down the road. He said he was talking to a guy that was helping him do all this, and he said, uh, he said, well, we have to, we need trucks and stuff like that. Because the, the guy was like, you don't need any equipment at all. You don't even need a tractor. The cow is the tractor. The cow is the truck. The only time you need a truck is when you're done with the cows and they're going to slaughter. That's it. And he mm-hmm. says, well, we got them. We have this divided holding. And we have this land that's like a half a mile down the road, and that's where the cows need to go. So we gotta get them from, and the guy said, last time I checked, cows had four legs. And they walked the cows down the road, and they put them into their new holding. Little side note here. We had like a really big rainstorm, uh, earlier this week. So yesterday, I was letting the, Dorothy drive through our gate, unlocking the gate so she could drive through our gate out to the, 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 the road. And I look down on the ground next to our gate that lets in, and there's these huge holes in the ground. And at first, I'm like, what the hell? looks like somebody's trying to dig under the fence or something. Then I look closer, and they're cattle hoof prints. So there's a guy down the road, maybe two houses down that has cattle. And what I'm guessing is in the rain. Somehow something went wrong. and it, 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 There was two sets of prints, one very large set and a smaller set. So a cow and a calf must have gotten out, walked down the road, and when they saw our gate, our gate looks very similar to the gate that they left. And being a cow, not that bright, realized, hell, we're out here. These cars are driving by. This sucks. And it looks like they were trying to figure out how to get in. And it doesn't look like they proceeded down the road. So it looks like they were bright enough to turn around and go back. Um, but that's something to think about with cattle, too. If you have a cow, get loose. It's a large animal. that causes a lot of problems. Anyway, when Greg was riding down the road, he said the only thing you have to do is once you've moved them, you know, if somebody comes flying by in a Mercedes and hits a cow patty, it's a big problem. So you take your truck and you, you flatten them all, all the cow patties that they leave on the way. And uh, then looks just like mud in, in within a couple of hours and it's gone and it's not a problem. So this is a system where man is simply causing the animal to behave the same way. But when we say mob grazing, again, we're thinking these larger movements, which is why I went off on that whole sideline there. Where paddock shift is something that, even though it's the exact same thing, it's just a big paddock or a smaller paddock, paddock shift is something that when we say it that way, the average person with an acre can get their head around paddock shift. I'm going to have these spaces and just move animals through them, right? So that's paddock shift. Tractoring is like little paddocks, and it requires you to move more often, and Paul Wheaton hates it, and I don't care, because it's something that's been done so successfully by so many people for so long to ride it off I think is foolish. And there's no law that says your tractor has to be really, really small. There's no reason you can't build a tractor that's ten by ten, put four chickens in there, and that's plenty of space for four chickens for one day and move that thing every you know, every day. And Paul can whine and cry and oh, the poor chicken I don't care. I really, I love Paul, but when he's like, oh, the chicken is going to stand and it's, you know what? It's a chicken. It's four, six chickens in an area that big. It's plenty of space. That ground will not look abused when you move that tractor. It absolutely will not. And when you come back to it in a few days, it will be deep into recovery. And when you come back to it in a couple of weeks, it'll look better than when they were there two weeks ago. And it's been done so many times by so many people to write it off as a mistake. Tractoring also has some inherent advantages. A tractor is contained. So we have a little box house in there. We have Maybe if we ever have layer chickens that we're tractoring, we have a place where they can lay eggs that we can get to. We can hang our water bucket. We can put our feeder in there so that they have feed in addition to what they're eating off the ground. And when we move it, the birds move with it. If you're really smart with your tractors and you have your little place for your birds to go into. When they go in there, you close the door and you move it when they're in there. And then you don't have to worry about when you're moving them, getting out the bottom or anything. Really cool. So it works. The biggest limitation is size. If we're going to move the entire apparatus, something that's 10 by 10 is some work to move. It weighs a lot. It takes quite a bit of effort. You probably need two people to do it. If you can set it up so it has some sort of a wheel Uh, mechanism on it where it could be lifted up a little bit by a lever, wheels drop down, and then you've got four wheels to push. It can get quite easy. But to keep that small a number of animals in, eh, it's maybe not as big as it should be. If we look at different animals that have different utilization of the land, though, we might be able to tractor rabbits or quail in a far smaller system than that. Paddock shift would be that the animal and whatever housing and care requirements that they need are mobile like a tractor but in addition to that mobile unit which is probably smaller than a tractor because it's not something that they live in just something that they sleep in or take shelter in we have movable fencing and as we move the we move the, the the housing unit we move the fencing with them that's one way to do it we could also do permanent fencing um, the problem with permanent fencing is all of a sudden it's in the way of a lot of other things you might want to do. That's that's part of why I'm not looking at cross fencing things out. I got three acres, um, and, and you know it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out real fast. I mean I can do twelve twelve permanent paddocks of a quarter acre apiece. And that's plenty big, and you can move them every other day, and all you would see is the land get better and better and better. But then when I start looking at doing swaling, I start looking at wanting to bring vehicles in and out. I start looking at expense. It's easier to move the fencing and give them a slightly smaller area um, than it is to chop up my property that way. But I also have an acre side pasture. If I didn't have uh, you know an eye on turning a lot of that into food forest, well, you know we could do ten tenth acre pastures which is plenty big enough, and put them on a rotational period um, and then maybe bring them into one area that's a sacrifice area. So you've got them on nine permanent paddocks that they're improving, and then maybe they come off for a week to a sacrifice area. And that's that's something that Paul suggested, and I have a completely different suggestion. Uh, let's rotate the sacrifice area too. See, even a week on a piece of property that big, the chickens won't do enough damage that that land can't recover. Now, if they're get if that piece is getting hammered every 10 days for two weeks, it will. But if it's getting, and you can do this a little bit differently, you can move it to, there's no reason it has to be two weeks, a week. So they're in one place for a week, then they go into each paddock for two days, then they go into the, 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 the longest paddock that they've been out of next to the, well you, the, the, the seven day paddock for seven days, and then it repeats through there and chases itself back. And and that land will do just fine with a reasonable-sized flock of birds. So there's ways we can do this. The big advantage to tractoring over paddock shift, especially with birds, is predator protection. Um, I've talked to plenty of people. i got some chickens that are all happy and then they're really sad uh, a few weeks later because chickens aren't that smart and they have hawks. And the hawks just hammer the chickens. And you can put some overhead cover and things like that, throw some guinea. There's some things you can do to deal with it uh and to help the chickens have a better survivability rate. But the reality is chickens are pretty much a sitting duck, no, no pun intended, uh for a lot of b- birds of prey. Um Sean, who uh did the work for me up in Arkansas with his excavator, got some chickens. He said, you know, one day I let the chickens out. They were out five minutes, and there's a hawk with one of them. Five minutes, bam. So... If you have a tractor and you have this overhead protection, especially if you're doing like broilers, meat birds, and you're running meat birds, um, and you have a large number of them and you're doing it for a profit, taking away that predator issue is a huge thing. Because it's not just the raccoons you have to worry about. You, we can deal with coons and, and night predators pretty well with a good solid, uh, you know, coop. But daytime predators are a little bit different. There's not a lot you can do. And, you know, you can't go shooting hawks because you go to this place called jail for that and you get these big things called fines because they're protected. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be, at least on some level, but uh, I think the days where they were all going to disappear are gone. And the fact is now it's been so long since anybody's been able to shoot a hawk that they've lost all fear of humans. And once they know you have chickens in a place it becomes a fertile hunting ground. So that's one huge advantage. Another big advantage we're going to talk about a little bit at the end is setting your systems up so that other people can do it for you. Well, if you can set up a big enough uh, feeder that it will provide feed for seven days and a big enough waterer that it will f- provide water for, for seven days and your chicken house is inside the tractor so that you can't gain access unless you, know, you go around the back and open an egg-laying box or something like that, so that it's it's well protected from predators and you want a neighbor to look after your chickens while you take a seven day vacation, all you have to say is the tractor's there, tomorrow move it until it's it's past where it is now and just keep moving it. Just go out there once a day and move it for me. Can you do that? And you probably can get the neighbor's kid for, you know, three or four bucks a day, a little stipend to help him out, and say, and you go back here and decide you get the eggs out and you guys can have the eggs while I'm gone. And it's easy. If you need to do a paddock shift, now you've got a whole different scenario with management. It's a better system, but it's a harder system for someone to help you with. It doesn't really take care of animals all the time. So it's it's another way that you have to look at it. And then some animals, which I'll save now as I'm going to go through a list of animals for their roles in a paddock shift or tractoring environment, aren't really suited to paddock shift. Okay, Some animals just really won't work that way, but we can tractor them. I would put quail in that category. Um, even the little contracts quail and all, they can fly. They don't fly really well, but they can fly themselves out of a paddock. Um, rabbits dig and are, are have a tendency that they would find their way out. Now, we can do, there's ways of doing rabbits in a big, giant, like, rabbit screen house. And there's ways of doing quail like that. But we're not going to get the shift uh, component in there. and We're not going to get the soil improvement in there if we do that. So let's start out with chickens. We did a whole show on it so I'm going to go brief on it but I have to talk about them because that's the animal that everybody seems to start with including me even though I was all on ducks and I don't, I don't know if I'm on ducks so much anymore. I mean I was married to ducks because I thought I was going to have lots of ponds and I don't know that I'm going to be able to do that now and I have a tank plan and things like that but I'm thinking and I'll save them for last because I think the ultimate animal if you live in a place where the noise can be tolerated for paddock shift for people that don't want larger animals it's probably a goose and that might be the way i go is with geese but starting with chickens we can do shifting or tractoring with them and we can do it very very effectively with either a small or a large number of birds on even a relatively small amount of land The chicken has some behaviors. and If you understand the animal's behavior, then you can understand how you use it and manage it specifically in a multi-animal environment because you want animals whose behaviors complement each other, not so much compete with each other. Or if they do compete with each other, you maybe want to put them into a single mob or you want to space them further out. So if I have an animal that's mainly a grazer and I have an animal that's primarily a scratcher, Like a chicken, I might put the grazer right in front of the scratcher or the scratcher right in front of the grazer. And I know they're going to have different behaviors, different effects, and take different resources to put different uh, return elements back into the land. So they're not so much beating the land up. They're complementing it with each other's behavior. So the chicken's primary behavior is the scratch, which means it disturbs soil significantly. It digs things up, it uproots things, and it's a very effective predator control, or a pest controller. So it's a very effective predator on pests. If I have fruit falling off of my trees, I know that the chickens love the fruit flies and their larvae, and I wanna put a paddock around those fruit trees at the point that fruit's falling, and I wanna break that pest cycle. So even though I normally might be moving them over to paddock seven, in my just making something up i might want to move them today to four because i've got a huge windfall of fruit and fruit pests and i know that because that's there even if they were on that paddock a little bit closer than i would normally want to put them back there they're going to spend a hell of a lot more time messing with that fruit and the fruit flies while it's there than they are going to spend on the other things they normally would do so they're going to behave differently to the situation and if we start thinking this way we can be smarter than a chicken and that's the thing, if you want animals to work for you, you have to just be a little bit smarter than they are. And that's not that hard to do if we'll just use our God given brains and think. So, chicken is a scratcher, a soil uh, disturber, and it will graze some. It will eat some greenery, but it's not really a grazing animal. It's looking for, it's an omnivore. And it's a, a, a highly uh, optimist, uh, opportunistic omnivore. So it'll eat green only as much as it needs to. It'll eat green. It'll eat some grain feed that we're giving it. Throwing some grain feed on the ground will encourage the scratching. It, they will find other things, and they will decimate the pests in the area you have them for a day. If it, if it wiggles, crawls, flies, if it does anything, and a chicken sees it, it's dead meat. It's going to get eaten. And that's its behavior. Now, let's move on to something like a rabbit. So we look at rabbits and we go panic shift probably not. I mean I don't want to be out chasing rabbits around at all. And you also have a problem with your breeders. Um, you you know you you have to be careful when you're breeding rabbits. Uh, you, you you do the wrong thing and a doe will actually castrate a buck. Uh, they need to be put together to breed, and then they kind of need to go their own separate ways. Now, I'm told in a large enough environment where they all have their own space that that's not a problem anymore. I don't have any experience that shows that to be true, though, just the word of several people who I trust that say that. But it's actually pretty easy to your, your your bunnies. And when I say bunnies, I mean the ones you're growing up for meat. So you have your breeder operation like uh, any rabbit breeding operation would have. You have some does and some bucks and, uh, you know... You take your your doe, your female, to the buck's cage, and you let them breed, and you take the doe back out. If you bring the buck into the doe's cage, that's where you can get into some problems. The the female that knows that's a nesting area for her gets very very territorial and protective, even before she has a litter, and that's where you know the the male can lose what makes him a male, and he's no longer a valid buck free anymore. But you have your regular rabbit breeding operation. And once your, your rabbits are basically weaned, your bunnies are weaned, and they're able to start eating natural foods again, you can tractor them very, very effectively. Joel Salatin's son does this, and people say, well, how do you give them access to the ground and, and not let them get out? What, what Joel's son is doing, he builds a, basically a box, the bunnies and they're fine in there and they have a little place to go in and sleep at night basically they just huddle together when they sleep it's not a problem you don't have them out in the middle of january doing this it's not your breeding season anyway and um you 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 build the box with wooden slats for bottoms and basically you leave enough space between the slats that the rabbits can get access to the ground and, and and graze and they can manure through there but it's too small for them to get through. So it doesn't matter if they were to try to dig because they can't get through the wood. So it's a wood floor um, and, and, and slats. And I imagine it could be done a lot of ways. Um, if you took heavy gauge wire and basically did it like prison bars on the bottom and made sure they were close enough together, you'd have even more, you have less. I think it's actually a better solution for the rabbits. We're talking about a rounded wire so it's not going to hurt them if they try to dig into it. We're not talking about something sharp like like uh, I wouldn't use chicken fencing or something like that. It seems like if they try to dig that because they have that natural instinct once they can touch the ground that it might cause damage to their paws. So I would use a heavy gauge wire and nail staple nails and build just basically like a bar arrangement and that would give you almost 100% exposure and you take your, your rabbits and you put them in your tractor and they, you know, you figure out how big for how many bunnies and you just move it every day. Now they're eating clover and plantain and chicory and grass and you're feeding them and you're getting a pastured rabbit. And I, the rabbit just doesn't work with paddock shift, but following the rabbits with chickens would be really interesting because the rabbits are soft footed. They're not going to, you know, the cows push their own poop and everything into the ground. So the rabbits are going to leave pellets. The chickens are going to come through and scratch. They'll peck it. They'll even eat some of the pellets, believe it or not, and they'll crap that back out. But they'll work it into the soil. So I would put the chickens after, not before the rabbits, based on the behavior. And I would see the rabbit more like a little cow. Now, it doesn't have the impact of a cow, but it behaves like a cow. It eats green, green and it converts it to manure and it puts it back to the ground. It's a tr- it's a hedge trimmer. So rabbits I would say would work with tr- with with tractoring. Quail quail are not really going to eat a lot of greens. They'll eat some but not a ton. Because of that they are more of they do a little bit of disturbing, a little bit of fertilization and they'll do a little bit of pest control, but they're going to primarily eat what you feed them. So they are not going to have the impact that a chicken or even because they're going to have less manure than even a a rabbit. The, the the good news is you build them a big enough tractor where they can kind of move around and all. You can probably move them every other day, and they're not going to have any major impact on the land. But they are going to have a beneficial way of improving it. Now, if I was using chickens, rabbits, and quail, I would probably put the quail uh, behind the rabbits and the chickens behind the quail, and I would really get that material. Turned into the ground. And I would try to put it so that the rabbits were there for a day and gone for a day. Maybe, I would say put the quail, the, the, the rabbits would be there for a day, then gone for two days, then the quail for a day, and then gone for two days, and then the chicken. So I would have them that far behind each other. To allow these different behaviors to take over, and you have to, you know, use your brain with how many animals and how far you splice them out. Uh, you know, do you run them together as a mob, what have you? And some animals can be together, and some animals can't. You've got to kind of plan for yourself and what you're using. Um, ducks. Ducks are clowns. And ducks can be very soft on land or very hard on land, depending on the type of land you have. If you have land that's generally muddy and clay, as one of the callers called in recently, you'll have a lot of holes in it because they'll stick their bills in there. Now, what I tried to explain, though, when that guy called in is why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because there's something in there, usually slugs and worms and grubs. So they're doing pest control. And if we come behind those holes and we throw a little bit of, you know, maybe a little compost or a little bit of wood chips down, not a lot, not a coating, just enough that some gets in there, and before we do that, we do some seeding, we'll get some very effective cultivation by the ducks of whatever we're seeding. But to me, ducks don't work in the shift environment as well as most of the other livestock. Ducks tend to be an animal that you kind of just give free range to a property and if you have the resources they need, and they have ponds, and they have places to, to 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 exhibit their behaviors, they go there to do that, and they don't cause a lot of problems elsewhere if they have that space. And the the beauty of the duck is it's the most self-sufficient animal, as far as I'm concerned. You can have on a homestead maybe guineas, maybe guinea hens are up there with them, with less of the problems of the duck. You know, the the clown troop of ducks, but I mean, a duck really, I've seen plenty of locations where pe- if people have a pond or two, they don't do anything with their ducks except pick up eggs, if that. Um, I know some people that have ducks and the eggs, just the dogs just go eat the eggs. The Dogs can be trained to actually you know, bite into an egg, crack it, and eat it. And, uh, I mean, that's their beauty. Shifting them, I'm kind of up in the air about it. I think that the best shift environment for ducks is when you're doing things like rice patties and shifting them through rice patties and the aquatic environments that they're best suited to. Um, I still may have some ducks here eventually. I just don't think they're part of the initial plan for improvement of the land. If I can see if I can get a couple ponds in this fall, um, if I can make that work in some areas, it opens that up a lot more. But if I do have ducks, the ducks are going to have a hell of a lot more freedom to come and go as they please than most of these other animals because, they, again, if you give them a place where they can be a duck, they don't generally exhibit certain behaviors in areas that are not conducive to it. So a duck is about balancing and giving him a place to be a duck. You can throw a couple kiddie pools out and all, and that's fine, but they're going to make a big, muddy hole, and you're going to have to move that pool. And that's one way you could paddock shift ducks. As long as they can't get off your property, let's say you're perimeter fenced, like I am, and you move their kiddie pool every day, They'll exhibit that behavior adjacent to that pool. And if you move it every day, well then, pff, but then you gotta fill it, you gotta get water to it. It all depends on how much work and space. And again, thinking about, you know, at times you might wanna go away and have somebody else take care of it. So to me, ducks are a great, um, small livestock. They, they provide a lot of utility, but they're not that conducive to shift. The more and more I've looked at it, considered it, and researched it, Um, I don't see them unless you have, again, you know, if you have a rice paddy environment, things like that, where you can move them through the different paddies and all, uh, I I guess they work really well that way. Maybe a chinampa system would be another place where they would make a really great rotational, uh, component to the system. But as a pasture animal, it's just not what they are. You can make it work, um, but I'm still of the opinion that when I bring ducks into the system, if I still do, that we'll put, Tanks in multiple locations and use that for for fertilization. And they'll move if you give them tanks. You don't even have to tell. They'll go to different tanks. They'll just whatever one they feel like that day. They're very very independent, and that's that's their primary um, uh, adv- advantage. Guinea's guinea hens I've always looked at like ducks that don't make mud. Um, most farms that I know that have guineas. You take your guinea hens, and if you've never seen a guinea hen, just go Google guinea. It's spelled G-U-I-N-E-A, put in guinea hen, and you'll find these these African birds uh, that are a little bit larger than a pheasant, and they actually taste a lot like pheasants. People look at them and think they're ugly and think, boy, I'd never want to eat that. Boy, if you like pheasant, you'd like guinea hen. But the standard operational procedure I've seen on most farms with guineas is you get yourself a small flock of guineas. They're kind of your alarm system. They tell you when anybody's showing up, so you know, and they tell the other animals whenever there's a a, a predator bird, a hawk, or something like that, they alert. Uh, and that, and you know, the smarter animals on your farm end up learning that that means something and they actually respond to it. Your dumber ones get picked off, and over time, your predation problem goes down because you end up with animals that know that that guinea alert means danger. Um, you don't feed them. You don't worry about them. You just put them out there, and they don't do a lot of harm to your land because they're primarily an insect eater. And they just basically forage for themselves. And I never really thought about putting them into a paddock shift environment until I read last month's Acres USA magazine about a couple that are actually doing paddock shift with guineas. But anyway, they were doing a a paddock shift operation with guineas and hogs and having very good results with that. Um, with the guineas doing just basically a lot of pest control. And, and I guess it makes sense. It's just that the entire point that most people seem to have with guineas in America today is that they're a pest control, alarm system, self-sufficient animal that you really don't have to do anything for. They're almost like a feral bird that lives on your property and doesn't leave. I mean, that's, that's really a great way to think about them. And again, they're actually considered meat-wise a delicacy. And if you give them what they need, they'll breed for you. So it's not like they're really hard to breed. I think some people believe that. So I guess guineas have a place. It's just their behavior is far more a pest control behavior. They do a little bit of scratching, but it's more of a a backwards kick to try to make things move so they can find stuff. It's not anywhere near the level of disturbance that a chicken does. So if you put them into a shift arrangement, there's no reason guineas can't go with your chickens. So you can have a paddock shift with a few guineas in there, and that's going to help with the pest control, and they're going to be there to help look out after your chickens. You could throw a couple of geese in a paddock shift with the chickens as well, and you've got guard geese. Um Geese are pretty tough animals. They're, when they're full grown, too, you're looking at animals that range, you know, smaller uh female geese will go 16 pounds. It's about as small as you're going to get from an adult. Uh And large ganders can be as big as... 22, 24 pounds. That's a pretty significant animal. And if you've ever seen a pissed off goose, they're uh, they're pretty good at looking out after. And they they tend to pick sometimes on like baby ducklings and stuff like that. But in general, they get along good with other animals on the farm. They seem to imprint on a family dynamic, no matter what the other family member looks like they're not geese are non-racist okay they don't they're not just non-racist with color they're non-racist with species they they imprint on their keepers they imprint on chickens and they all become like this is my family and if anything threatens them they they go into guard duty so you know that's a multi-species arrangement in a paddock a couple geese a few guineas and some chickens you just need to make your paddock a little bit bigger when you do that Um, next up, I want to talk a little bit about some animals that are a little bit larger animals today, but that can still be done on smaller holdings. Goats and sheep, I think, are really awesome. Now, I thought about getting goats, and it turns out the people that lived here before me had goats, and I heard from one of the neighbors that the lady was up at 4.30 every morning to milk the goat. I don't want to get up at 4.30 every morning and milk a goat. Frankly, I don't want to milk a goat every day. Um, If I ever have goats or sheep, we're doing it for meat. We're not doing it for milk. I mean, I just – if I want goat milk, I will get somebody that has goats and does milk to buy goat milk from. It it goes under the heading of not everybody can do everything. But the thing about goats and sheep is they can live on browse that is not good enough, high quality enough for cattle – And they basically behave like a little cow, with their manure actually being, let's call it, less hot. It's far more initially usable without a breakdown period. Um, If you've ever, you know, used cow manure or chicken manure um, in composting, you know it. it, When it's used directly, it needs to be composted so that the nitrogen levels come down to the point where it doesn't actually burn plants. Sheep and goats have manure very similar to deer or rabbit. It's pretty much usable as is. It's a pellet. It's kind of like a little fertilizer pellet. But they behave the same way. They're a browser. They eat green stuff. They walk around. They tramp it down. They're not as big. They don't do it as aggressively. But it works. Now, I'm going to give you a breed of sheep. that if I ever do sheep here, it'll be next year or later before I do. And when I've got a lot of the, the land improved already... And kind of bring them in to take it to another level. I'm probably going to do a species of sheep called a dorper sheep. Dorper sheep are white with black heads. It's like there's some other, you know, color phases now, but that's the classic dorper. There's two things that I really find attractive, or actually three things I really find about dorpers that are quite attractive. One, they come from a desert strain in the, in the, you know, the wild lineage. So they can handle the harsh, hot environments like Texas, the dry environments like Texas. Far more the way a goat does than a typical sheep does. Number two, they are a self-shearing sheep. I have no desire to shear sheep. I have no desire to mess around with wool. Um, I'm not trying to make a cash crop here. And if I want wool, I'll buy wool. I just look at it. If I wanted to buy enough wool to do whatever I need to do with wool for the next 10 years, I could go do it tomorrow. So... I'm not looking for wool and I'm not looking for the work associated with shearing sheep. These things in the spring when it starts to get warm, it just falls off. They shed like a dog. So you've you've got that going for them. And the last thing is that they lamb at a rate at about one point five uh the rate of normal sheep, if you want to say that. So they have a you know, over a three year period, if you have let's say one ram and two ewes, you're gonna get an extra couple lambs every two to three years. That means they have a higher meat yield because the lamb is what you're looking for. When you when you eat sheep that's full of growing, you call that mutton. And uh, they used to call poor people back in the olden days mutton eaters because they couldn't afford to eat lamb. They would eat the used up, worn out sheep. And uh, so lamb is definitely the higher quality meat. So if I bring in sheep that, or goats, I'm bringing it in for meat, and you're looking at young animals at that point, And this Dorper sheep has all of the high-quality components of a goat as far as ease of use and things like that and not having to have special care. But you get lamb instead of goat. And goat's okay, but lamb, I love lamb. Now, my concern is slaughter. Um, And it, it applies to the next animal I'm going to talk about as well. Um, I don't really have problems slitting the throat of a chicken or, you know, breaking the neck of a rabbit or popping the head off a quail. I, I didn't say it when we had Moon Valley Prep all with his episode on quail when he was talking about, you know, just taking them and snipping their heads off with a pair of snips. But I was thinking, you know, honestly, every dove hunter knows that when you knock a dove down in the field and it's not dead, you just walk up to it, you grab its head between your, your, your pointer finger and your middle finger. And you give it one swift jerk and the head just pops off and that's it. It's as quick as it could ever be. And it just seems like it is a pretty easy way to take care of your quilt. I have no problem doing these things with these animals. You start dealing with animals with personalities that trust you and real personalities and especially smaller numbers. When you're dealing with chickens and you got two dozen chickens and it comes the, you know, the graduation day. Um, you don't really know the individual birds. It's like fish in a tank, right? You have 20 tiger barbs in a tank. You don't know one from the other. you got one big angel fish in there. He kind of becomes a centerpiece and you know what he is, right? So when you're dealing with sheeps and you've got two or three lambs only, you kind of know them each individually. And it would be a little harder for me to slaughter an animal like that. I'm to shoot a deer. I, and this is something I've always struggled with. And, and I, I try to justify it. And it's something every person has to find their own peace with. And trust me, if I'm starving, no problem. But in a day-to-day thing, when I hunt and I either put an arrow or a bullet through an animal, I feel like I've earned the right to take that animal's life. I'm talking about higher-level animals here, animals that can think at a level that, uh, frankly, a bird doesn't. Um, when I have an animal that trusts me, it's a little bit more difficult. So it's something you have to consider if you're going to raise animals like this for slaughter. And some of the ways that this can be easier is you can generally find people locally that do butchering and slaughter. And it's usually easier for some people to say certain things I'm going to do myself and certain things I'm going to have done by somebody else. Frankly, um, I was at one place where there was a guy that came out to do chicken slaughter. And his charge was $1.99 a chicken. And this guy had about 200 chickens. And he came out with an assistant and they had all the equipment and they just went to town and they did it. And at the end of the day, you know, there was 200 perfectly butchered chickens and the guy that was, you know, running the operation handed him 400 bucks. And I thought, you know what? If I was doing 200 chickens, I'd probably pay the 400 bucks. That's cheaper than any chicken you're going to get from a supermarket. And my time is valuable. If we're talking about a half a dozen, I'm going to do it myself. And these are things you need to think about before you start bringing animals into a system, especially animals that replicate themselves. What are you going to do when there's more of them than you can handle? And when you're looking at all the little fuzzy peep, peep, peep chickens, and you're thinking, well, I'm going to have a flock of two dozen, and in that fall, you're looking at two dozen grown birds, are you going to be able to say, we need to call the herd now? And if you can't do it, do you have somebody that... These are things that you've you got to answer these questions for yourselves. And there's things you'll be comfortable doing and not comfortable doing. That brings me to the next animal that's kind of a larger animal for this type of situation. Pigs. Um, pigs are like a cow with a tractor nose. right? They will push into the ground deeper. They will uproot things. They will really disturb soil. They'll roll around... But when you move them every day, that behavior is as much of an improvement on the land as any other animal's behavior. You can track their hogs, or you can paddock shift them. Uh, you get a great meat yield out of them. It's a good return of investment for how much feed you have to provide, how much they can get on pasture. They're actually a huge return of investment, and you'll see it when you go to a store. Now, it's true that they're doing cattle and CAFOs and pigs, and I guess it's basically called a CAFO for hogs as well. But price meat by the pound or beef by the pound versus pork by the pound. And even pasture grass-fed organic beef versus pastured organic pork. And there's a much bigger premium on the beef. And it's, it's not because people like beef so much better. It's because beef takes more effort, more work, more resources. So it's more expensive to produce. And there is a little bit of a premium there because of consumer preference. I mean, I think most people, if you said you could have a pork chop, or you can have a porterhouse steak. Most people are going to go with the porterhouse steak. Not everybody, but I would, I, and I like pork. Um, my my problem with pigs for meat animals is once domesticated. I mean, a wild pig is is actually a fairly dangerous animal, and 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 a pig is on the verge of going back to wild at all times. But when they do, as um, they do become domesticated and, and they grow from little piglets up. The, the, the closest animal I can describe their behavior to and how they relate to humans is a dog. And if you think about trying to say, okay, my dog that I bought this spring in the fall has now grown up and I'm going to kill him and freeze him and eat him, um, A lot of people would have a real. I know I. I could not do that to one of my dogs. I could. Max is sitting here on the floor listening to me right now, and there's no way I could use him as a meat source. Specifically, you know, for the purpose we got to puppy grow them up and eat them. I know some parts of the world it's done, but it's not something I'm comfortable with. Pigs, to me, when you raise them from piglets, they get that vibe. And it's it would be a difficult thing for me even to raise them and then send them away. And I think about the only way I could get over that is to be raised again, raising them in numbers where you don't get really attached to any of them. You know, you got pig tractors, you're moving them every day. There's 20 hogs out there, and graduation day they go away, and that's it. That's the end of the story. Um, And again, this is a place where it's not about killing a pig that's a problem. It's about the pig in the situation where that animal's trusted me and would eat from my hands. In the end, though, they are tasty. Um, Last weekend, a listener had gotten in touch with me and said they have tons of feral hogs on their ranch up in North Texas, further north than I am, closer to Oklahoma than than they are to me. And uh, their, their freezers were full, and they were still killing more because they had way too many damn feral hogs. And would I like one or two of them? and i said absolutely so well, if you meet me somewhere I'll, I'll you know bring a big cooler and i'll i'll, I'll give you some and uh, but you're going to have to clean them I'm, i'll i'll gut them for you but that's it i don't like to skin them i don't like to butcher them i'll gut them for you and he gutted them a bit rough we're going to have to talk i'm going to have to talk to him about the way he gutted them uh uh he did it right but he did it further than needed to be done and it made skinning a little bit more difficult uh one of them actually when i got the the skin down past the hips the whole pig came in half like it just cuz of how far they'd cut the pelvic girdle to get that part out anyway um but you know the point is he brought me three he was shooting three of them two of them were probably 70 80 pounds and uh a live weight and then one was a little bitty one and i brought them here and i strung them up and i skinned them out and i quartered them and i made chops and we've eaten a bunch of it already and a bunch of it's in the freezer and. You know, you don't, by the way, you know, pigs that size, you don't get a lot of meat. I mean, what you would think you would get, I would say we got 50, 60 pounds of meat out of those three pigs. Um, so it's just something to think about when you're raising hogs. If you, you're you going to want to raise them to a fairly significant size to get enough of a meat yield to make it worthwhile. But I had no problem with that. And i told you, I'm a ruthless pig killer. If you ever want some help, put them down. Just, I'll come up there and I'll show you how to take out more of them than you can imagine. But a domesticated pig is something that would be a little bit harder for me uh, to do that to, especially when I had raised from a piglet. So these, again, these are those things you have to think about. But I think a pig's behavior makes it a natural fit into a system. Um, you know, Joel Salatin does a lot with chickens and pigs and beef and pushing them through the same land in different sequences. And his property has improved to the point, to give you an idea of what this type of a system can do over time, Eventually, on Joel's ranch, they had to go to the fences and raise the fence posts a foot. Because over the years, they had built so much topsoil, the fence was effectively a foot lower. Think about that. That's every reason in the world for you to want to do this on some scale on your own property. The last animal that I saved for my list today is geese. And the more research I've been doing about ducks and geese, and let me explain why ducks or geese in the first place with me. One, I want an animal that's extremely self-sufficient. Two, I want an animal that reproduces well, okay, um, so that I can have a breeding animal that will breed meat stock for the next year, um, I don't mind doing the brooding. I don't mind collecting the eggs, putting them in an incubator, sticking them in a turner, you know, having three or four weeks out of every year where we're brooding chicks and we have to, that, that's fine. I don't mind that. They don't have to be brooding animals. With geese, you really don't want to let your, your mama geese brood your, your, your goslings. Um, cause they'll imprint on her and not you. And you want them to imprint on, on you and then they will imprint on, on the rest of the geese in the flock. Um, they'll be a lot more tame if you do the brooding yourself. You can even, let the goose, you know, take care of the eggs till they're almost ready to hatch and then take them and finally incubate them and all. But if you remove the eggs and you never let them actually nest, your, 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 your stationary flock of yeast will become a lot less, uh, aggressive as well. Cause even when they're really imprinted on you and they're friendly and all, when the, when the, when the mom's got eggs, man, uh, the gander and her together, they get really pissed. If you get near, you know, they get really aggressive even with people they know. Um, there's things you can do to make them more trusting. Believe it or not, one of the ways to get geese to trust you is to bring your head down to their level. Not your hand, because your hand is seen as aggression, but your head is seen as a trusting thing. And it's how, if you watch geese interact with each other when they get along, you'll see they bring their heads low under each other, and then the other one will do it, and it's basically saying, hey, you're cool, I'm cool, we're not going to fight. So, <laughs> But when they're you know, hissing at you because they're on a stand of eggs, there's maybe you don't really want to do that because... They don't really hurt, but if they get an ear, um, I don't know if you've ever had a goose get a get a good nip on your ear. Another thing to consider with geese is small children. Um, adults generally understand body language, even if they don't know they understand it. They know certain things like this shows fear, this shows aggression. Geese will notice a lot of times with smaller children, I'm talking like five, six-year-olds, that that, that kid is unbalanced, and if it's an aggressive goose especially, they'll take advantage of them. Um, and they also can be triggered by some of the behaviors that a kid just, the kids just run around, ah, they don't think. Right? So it's something to consider. Now, if you have kids that are well disciplined, it's not a problem, but it's just something to think about. Especially if you have little ones that come over that aren't familiar with your kind of lifestyle from family members, is say, you know, we're gonna keep you away from the geese. It's something to consider, is all I'm saying um but that's you know it's kind of the, the deal with geese is they'll, they'll they don't lay anywhere near as prolifically as ducks or chickens but you can get a good number of eggs out of, of your uh, uh of your geese every year and those can result in a whole new crop of meat birds goose is expensive it's more expensive than duck go price go to the store and you'll find almost you'll almost never find fresh goose you'll always find it in the freezer section um, and look at the cost of a goose. It's, it's, it's really expensive. So if I'm going to grow a meat animal on my property and I can grow a premium animal that I can either, if I ever want to go in commercial and sell at a premium or simply when I'm eating it, I'm eating something that's expensive and I can buy a less expensive animal. It's it's a it's a good trade. So that's kind of what led me to geese or ducks. That was kind of the thought in the beginning, geese or ducks. Then Dorothy fell in love with the freaking Indian runner ducks, which I saw very little use for except they're like pets. And they can do all the behaviors that a duck does, right? So but she likes geese too, so we're leaning toward geese now. The reason is that the goose out of all the small livestock, and I call small livestock anything under fifty pounds, it never gets fifty pounds or bigger. Um, out of all of the livestock is the closest thing to a cow you can get at that size. More so than a rabbit. A cow can defend itself against most predators. A rabbit cannot. A cow is pretty mobile. It can get around. It can be directed. It can be done with paddock shift. It doesn't have to be contained. A rabbit cannot. Geese will protect themselves from most predators. I mean, bobcats, you know, you get coyotes, you got some problems there, but when it comes to, you're not gonna see a, a, a crestal hawk taking out a full-grown goose. It ain't gonna happen. You're not gonna see a cat, a house cat taken out a full-grown goose. And I'll tell you what, if you've got a gaggle, they will give a bobcat hell. A raccoon, yeah, it ain't gonna happen. Right? So, they can look after themselves a lot more, like a cow can. Uh, they will work in a paddock shift environment. Here's the big thing. Their favorite thing they eat is grass. They're a grazer. I think a lot of people look at geese and they think that geese are going to be very much an aquatic animal, and they they tend to be, but that means that they're going to be really heavy on eating fish and stuff like that. They'll eat some some pests and stuff, but they're they're a grazer. And that means the manure that they leave behind is very similar to the manure left behind from a cow. It is and it isn't. When I say it is, it doesn't look the same. But it's made up of the same digested components. Far less grain, far less insects than a chicken, far more herbaceous material. They're also a big animal. Again, we're talking about a goose being 16 pounds on the light end. By the way, a female goose is called just that a goose. And a gander, a male goose, uh, is generally going to be in the neighborhood of 18 to 24 pounds. They have a significant ability to trample. They they have a lot less water need than a duck. They basically need something they can get into. They can take a bath. They can get wet, and they're good. They will move for you. All right. If you have paddocks set up where you don't let like chickens, you kind of there's there's two ways you can move chickens. The easy way and the hard way. Ben Falk, sorry, I love you, man, but I think you're doing it the hard way. Ben Falk's system is he's got all these chickens with no chicken house, and he's just raising them as broilers, and they're in with the sheep. And they're in electro fencing, and when you're going to move them, you got to get the chickens to go where the fencing is. And basically, he'll throw some feed and stuff like that. But you always end up having to run some of the damn things down. I think the easy way to move chickens is you give them a chicken house that's mobile, which is a great way to do it. Anyway, anybody doing layers or something's going to do this anyway. He does. He does these broilers. They all they just sleep in little huddled things in with the sheep. So anyway, (laughs) the easy way to move these chickens is when they go in the chicken house at night. You close the door, okay? And then you move the chicken house and you set up the fencing and then you let them out in the morning. You can either move them at night when you put them to bed or you can move them in the morning before you open the door. And, and that's the easy way. With geese, you don't even need feed. Once geese imprint on you, you can pretty much go, come on geese, come on geese, and they follow you like dogs. And they'll just you know, just move them over, you can move their thing and come on in here and close it up. And they're easy to move around and herd, they are a lot like herding sheep or goats or cattle, except they're more cooperative. And again, they're a grazer and a large animal, so they're going to trample a lot of that litter, right, that standing litter into the ground. And I think it, it, pretty much it's a known factor. The geese improve grass over time. Now, another thing is, because they're primarily a grazer, their digestive system is really not set up to do a good job of digesting whole seeds, so you can supplement their feed with some cracked grain and things like that, and they will eat that. They're less uh, they're less happy about it than a duck or a chicken. Chickens go crazy for it. Keys are like ah, I'm hungry. I'll eat a little bit of that, but I I prefer this this grass over here, please. But when they do get seed heads off of your grass and things like that, that's another thing to understand with this mob grazing. The people that are most successful at it, they're letting the the grass and the weeds grow to a point that the average farmer, the average rancher goes, you let that grow too high. And what Greg Judy says in this thing is the only purpose that that grass has in its existence is to produce a seed head. So if these seed heads are produced and the goose is going to get some of the seed and a lot of it's just going to go in whole and it's going to get crapped out whole, encapsulated in a little goose poop, and what better environment could that seed want to be incubated in to grow and improve the pasture? So the seeds that the, the goose takes in, it's going to do a better job of putting back to the earth in encapsulated form to regrow than something like a chicken. A chicken will do some of that. Some seeds pass through a chicken, there's no doubt. But they're a lot more likely to grind those seeds in their crop, open those seeds with their beaks, things like that, where a goose is just kind of getting it as a byproduct. So I think the goose... It's like they're noisy, you know, the, right? So you got to live in an area where people aren't going to, you know, call everybody because you have a goose and it makes noise. But if you have an area big enough for a small gaggle, and by the way, a flock of geese is actually a gaggle of geese. Um, I think they might be one of the ultimate panic shift animals. And it's why we're really looking at them uh, as what we're going to want to do to lose goose. Uh, which are a gray goose that are a very gentle goose as far as geese go. It's something we're really considering, but finding them is, is proving difficult. Uh, a lot of people have them but don't have them available. Uh, we may have to order some for June right now, it looks like, from a few sources I've, I've seen. If you live in North Texas and you have an abundance of, of geese of some sort, let me know. Maybe we could work out a deal where I could buy some of your goslings off of you this year because it's something I'd like to get into uh, pretty quick here. Uh, to run along with the chickens and, and the other things that we're doing. Um, well, last thing I want to talk about are just a few final thoughts on this to make your life easy because we don't want this to make our lives hard. Uh, number one, you need to really understand the animal's needs. And if you understand the animal's needs, you can make husbandry easy. Husbandry is simply care for animals. And that means anything that animal's is going to need, do whatever you can to make sure it's provided with as minimal input from you as possible. So that includes their food, their housing, etc. And the parts they need from you, you want to automate as much as possible uh, or at least make the things that you do last a week versus a day. So it makes a lot of sense, for instance, instead of having a little chicken water like we use in our brooder, to have a five-gallon bucket with some chicken nipples hanging off of your mobile chicken house. So when you move the house, you move the water with it, you fill that five-gallon bucket, and that maybe lasts those chickens a week. And you can do things with feed even when you're away, like setting up a small deer feeder on a timer to throw feed a few times a day so that that can last a week. So thinking about those things and saying, occasionally I might want to go on vacation and making the process as automated as possible and making what has to be done by humans as simple as possible. It makes your life easier day to day, but again, it makes getting help while you're away from a caretaker a hell of a lot easier as well. Um, I also want you to have to, you have to start thinking differently about your land. If you're going to start practicing like a mob grazing, paddock shift, tractoring environment on your property, you have to stop thinking about your land. Even though you're cutting it up, you have to think about it less as cut up. And what I mean is that most people think about, well, I have my lawn, and then over there's my garden, and then there's my flower beds. You have to start seeing your whole property as a giant garden. I don't care if you have food forest on it. The whole probably still a garden from the standpoint of it's something that you're caring for and you're advancing forward and you're, you're benefiting from. Eventually what happens when you do this is you go out and you look at a pasture and it doesn't look like what we think of with pasture anymore. It's not like one or two main types of grass that grows up really tall and it's just this, this cornucopia. Of, of different varieties and herbs and plants. I mean, there's stuff everywhere. Some of that can be done with overseeding. One of the things I didn't talk about today, I think that makes a lot of sense, once you put your animals through an area, if you're trying to encourage something, throw seed down, uh, cover crop seed, pasture seed mixes, whatever, where those animals just were. It's a perfect time. The soil is fertilized, it's disturbed, and you know, you're going to get a, a much better germination rate. Uh, at that point, seeding the right plant at the right time of year, of course. Don't seed something that should be seeded in September, in June, because it's probably not going to handle the heat. Um, but when you start doing this, that's what you get is this this huge, lush, rich mixture. When I walked around Ben Fogg's place in Vermont, um, it was like a salad bar. You know, Joke Salad calls it salad bar beef, but I mean, it really was. There was clover, there was chicory, there was plantain um there was multiple types of clover there was different grasses there was plants i couldn't even identify and it looked beautiful rich green it it doesn't look like the typical cattle operation even the grass fed cattle operation because it was being managed and that's the key here is what we're doing here is not anything really revolutionary It's just management of natural behavior, making the animals go to the right place at the right time and then letting them be what they are. That's why understanding their behaviors, their their required inputs, and their outputs are so important. If you understand those three things about animals, you can basically run any animal in a system like this and get what you're looking for done to your property. Do you understand how it behaves? you understand what it needs, and you understand what it leaves behind, and then you'll understand the recovery period necessary before it occupies that space again. And then you build the size of your paddocks or the size of your tractors around the area that you have available, and you put the animals in there at the population where the land can support them. And it's probably a higher population than you think you can have. One of my concerns with the chickens, we have 12 chickens. I'm looking at this property going, I don't think that's enough chickens to do the work that needs to be done here. But we're going to start small. And that's my final piece of advice. It's easier to get more than it is to pin down once you've gotten too many. It's, it's much easier to work your way in because what Marjorie Wildcraft will tell you is when you start working with any animal, you're probably going to kill some of them. <laughs> and you'll learn when you kill them. And you won't do that again. And uh, because you've learned, you'll be better prepared to, br- to take on more. So start slow with any of this, but definitely start looking at what fits in your environment. If you're in suburbia, where there's even going to be a problem with hens, you know, chickens, but just t- no roosters, so they're quiet, and that might even be a problem. Rabbits are qu- completely quiet, you know. And I-, I would tell you that if I didn't have any animals at all in a system, that I would probably, if nothing else, get some rabbits, even if I didn't breed them for meat just for the fertility, just for the rabbit pellets, just to be putting it into the gardens and things like that. Um, But I think that if you have land you really want to manage, pushing animals and pulsing animals through the system is a great way to bring it to a completely different level. And with that being the case, I think it's something we should all consider. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, When I lived in a different part of Texas and I had a small quarter-acre lot, I didn't do it. We were planning a move, but there was more to it than that. Um, I may have gone ahead and done rabbits or something like that, but it probably would have never had, you know, a flock of chickens and geese running around in that place. It would have been a nightmare. The code enforcement people would have been there. So I understand it's not something everybody can do, but it's something that if you want to do it, you can find a way to do it. And nothing will do for the land what the animals will. If you think about it, there's no thriving, beautiful place in nature. It's not inhabited by animals. If you find a place with no animals, it's desolate. There's probably even some there. So it's unreasonable to think that we can replicate nature by leaving one of the most important components out of the system. With that, this has been Jack Spear with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. a better way